The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. God is incomprehensible in the sense that we can never exhaustively penetrate him. Therefore, we can't give a definition of God or a definition of man in Aristotelian sense. You take the totality view and you say, this is what I receive on authority. Very well. You don't like it. Very well. So then you start explaining life to me. Well, he says, I want a definition. I want to see through this thing. How you relate, because he says creation out of nothing is contradictory, and nothing that is contradictory, he says, can be true, because Parmenides says, I can by thought think through ultimate reality. Reality must be that which I can think that it must be. Now, the assumption there is that my intellect is the same intellect as the divine intellect. It has legislative, internally, inherently legislative power, and it rightfully claims that for itself, and it rejects every position, such as the Christian position. Uh, That's the only position it rejects, finally, because then man is said that he is, it is said to be only a creature, and that his intellect is that of a creature, and that it shouldn't, his intellect shouldn't legislate for reality, but should seek to understand this world which is given it to understand by God. Now, it's a choice between two totality pictures. And you can't make any part of this plain to a non-Christian without having him take the whole thing. Therefore, he either takes this thing in total or this thing in total. So when you say, all right, we're not going to say that there's a unity of being, but my existence and your existence and God's existence are different, but it's the creator-creature uh, idea that you bring out uh, most of all right there. Yeah. So that we are not infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Yeah. Now, he, of course, would also grant that he's not infinite. But then he'd say, I'm still of, this, of the same substance. God is infinite. But that he would mean reality is bigger than I am as an individual. But the point is that he claims that what reality he has got is of the same substance precisely as other, all reality. All right, other, other questions? Well, let's for the moment then go on to Aristotle. We'll come back to Plato again eventually. Well, now, the difficulty with Aristotle's position that he himself realized to an extent, and as he speaks of it, in some of his later dialogues, is this dualism between this holy other, timeless, timeless, changeless world of which none of us can individually have any knowledge except that we are absorbed in it. And if we're absorbed in it, then we aren't we anymore to have knowledge of it. And here's the non-being. And we are here a cross between pure non-being and 
pure, absolute, eternal being, a mixture of the two. We are. Now, how do you make a definition of man in terms of pure, unknown being, which is wholly above you, where your real being is supposed to be, and your individuality, which derives from this non-being, which is way down here. In other words, none of us experience non-being that's below anything that we see. None of us see absolute being. That's beyond everything. We are explained as individuals in terms of two principles, both of which are absolutely beyond us, the one upward above us and the other downward below us. Well, that dualism, it was that Aristotle starts with. And he says, what in the world? Now, he went to school with Plato for 20 years. And after you've been in class with a person for 20 years, you understand, understand his position pretty well. <laughs> and, uh, so he uh, said to his teacher, and he always remained faithful to the principles of Plato. In other words, what Aristotle taught isn't a change of position in any basic sense. It is certainly not a return to the creator-creature distinction. That is out. That isn't even talked about in polite society among the Greeks. It is taken for granted that you must understand reality and see through it exhaustively. And if you don't, then there is no knowledge, don't you see? Well, so Aristotle says, look, you have introduced this other world, haven't you? Mr. Plato, this other world, this ideal world. And here's Sparkplug and Jenny and Maggie, two individual nags, horses. The one is heaving, the other has a spavin. And but the real horse, the horse, or horse nest, is up there. Here's this girl. Now I thought she was pretty nice, but then I dropped her. She wasn't that. My ideal girl is up there. The ideal girl, which all of us want to marry, but none of us actually attain. <laughs> what is the use of this? What on earth, and this is what he says literally, what on earth is the use of introducing that other world as a source of explanation for this world, since you can't explain the relationship between the two worlds? <coughs> that was Aristotle's question. Well, he was right, so what did he say? How are we to approach it then? We mustn't have that start from that ideal world. Say, that's the only real world. We start right here with Socrates, he said. And here's Simeus. Or Simeus or Cebes, or Calius, or any of his friends. Now, there, down here, here's an honest-to-goodness individual man. And that's why we're going to read about Socrates, I mean Aristotle, having introduced the empiricistic approach over against the rationalistic approach, or that he is therefore interested in starting right in this world with a fact which everybody has before him and which everybody knows about, and he at least knows something. He's got something solid <coughs> under his feet to start from. Let's not start with principles over there. But then, don't you see, when Socrates and Callias, and I said yesterday he's 250 pounds and snub nose, Callias he's 150 pounds and non snub nose. Now, when they meet down here in this world, Heraclitus, they just bang around each other just like a couple pieces of ice in, a, in an ocean, you know, with currents and so forth. Now, there's got to be some sense of there must therefore be some relation of this individual to the eternal. 
And so Socrates did. Aristotle says, we have here to be sure non-being, but we don't call it non-being in that sense. We call it potentiality because it isn't absolute non-being. And we don't call this absolute being, we call this actuality. And therefore there's a gradational difference. There isn't this absolute dualism between one changeless being and one absolutely changing being down here. It's a gradational. Just like, suppose that you have a straight-up staircase. I saw by the building construction, I saw one builder climbing up that straight, straight ladder, and I don't want to go up there. Now, however, if they build it step like that, don't you see, then maybe I would go to the top, too, if they make the steps easy enough. Well, so what Aristotle wants to do, he wants to make a series of easy steps between this world here and the other. Now he says we have four causes. All the things that we know have material in them. Now I walked in wooden shoes in Holland and when your wooden shoes are worn out you got to have a pair of new ones and you go to a wooden shoe maker as I did one at a time. And the wooden shoe maker takes a block of wood. Now that's the material cause. Now that hasn't much shape. It has some form. You'll never see pure woodenness. You just see a piece of willow wood or a piece of popular wood. It has some measure of form already in anything that you experience here in the world. Nevertheless, <coughs> relatively speaking, compared to the nice wooden shoes, which I pretty soon walk home with, that is the raw material. And then there is the, uh, the moving cause, that is to say the action that starts this thing toward taking more shape and more form, and then you have the formal cause, that is, I have an idea in my mind what a wooden shoe should be. And then I have the final cause, namely, I want to make the wooden shoes for this little greenhorn Dutch boy who has to wear them and go to the Christian school in them. Now, that is the, the material, the efficient, as he calls them, and the formal and the final causes, all of which are stages between pure potentiality and pure actuality. Now that the totality outlook is an attempt, you see, to overcome this dualism that's in Plato, to make for a gradational, <coughs> gradual understanding. In other words, his fundamental position is like that of Plato. He says knowledge is of universals only. Really, I am certainly starting from the individual Socrates, the man. But don't you see, when I start from Socrates and from Pelias, I want to say something about both of them that is true of both of them. I have to give a definition. And here's your question again of definition of who is Socrates. Well, all I can say is Socrates is a man. What can I say about Pelias? He's a man. When I go and describe Socrates individually, he snub nose and Santippi as his wife, and when I describe Callius, he's 150 pounds, he's not snub nose and, and Mary as his wife. I don't know what his name, wife's name was. Then that's all accidental, don't you see? That's not of the essence of the matter. When I define, I got to give a universal that is true of him in terms of a concept. Germans call it the grip, a concept. Not a percept. A percept is what I, with my senses, with my eyes, ears, 
and so forth, I catch together empirically, gather up new things. But the concepts are the universal laws or species in terms of which I relate these individual percepts, and I can manipulate them. I can, here I have all kinds of little figures which I call potatoes. Well, I can put them in 100-pound bags. I can universalize them. I can, on the stock market, I get them out so completely universalized so that the whole stock administration on the stock market uh, is, of course, done quite independently, seemingly, of all these little individual facts. And yet they deal, the stock market deals with the individual rearrangements, sales, and so forth. So here, what he is trying to do is to say the individual has, first of all, pure matter in him. And then there is an e an e then there is a cause in eternal motion. In other words, things are not changeless, eternal changeless beings. There is a change, eternal motion. Now, that's not creation. That's not creation out of nihilo. Don't you see? It is an eternally self-existent source of movement. The exact opposite of creation out of nothing. Now, yet the Roman Catholic Church has to combine this notion of an eternal motion, not created, a moving force in all reality, with the Christian notion of creation. Now, that's the problem for Roman Catholics, that they have to slight, they have to Place together two such absolutely exclusive concepts as that that characterizes all their thinking. We'll see again. Well, now, this is the eternal matter, not creation out of nothing. So you see, every point in Aristotle's doctrine is absolutely exclusive of the Christian position, just as absolutely exclusive as this Platonism. And then the form. Now, the formal cause is what? Well, we say the formal cause in the Christian position is that God simply says this is going to be it. This is what I want that to be, and this is how I want this to differ from that. And I take my ideas from myself. God doesn't look up to a form. A fairly easy illustration is if a lady makes a dress, well, here she has the material. She has the goods, first of all. The the material, you call it. Isn't that right, Mrs. Fowler? You call it material, right? Well, that's what my wife calls it. Now, then she gets the sewing machine, and there's a movement, a terrific movement. <laughs> that's the efficient movement. And then there's the formal cause. She has in mind the dress she wants to make. All right, so she has a pattern, a pattern. And that lies out there before her, a pattern. And then, what for? Well, graduation dress. My daughter's going to graduate from the Christian high school in spring. So I want to make her a graduation. Or my daughter's going to get married. I want to make her a wedding dress. Now, that's the final, that is the ultimate, the goal. But everything, you have to have the material. You have to have the movement. If it weren't for the movement, the material would lie there forever unchanged, be no different from any other material. I was to the Orient a number of years ago, and I took some material along for a dress for my granddaughter and my daughter-in-law. All right? 
they produce the motion. You see, I just took the material which I bought in Tokyo. I brought that was one aspect of it. They produced the substance, and then my daughter and granddaughter, they wore it after that. Well, now, this is how all reality is explained. These are aspects. Now, here, pure actuality, this is the final product, but we never see this. This is always beyond us. This is down here is always. Pure non-being, nobody sees it. What you actually see is a combination of these four causes. Now, something is always on the way. Therefore, you have in it material, you have movement, you have a pattern, and you have a purpose. Now, that explains the whole of reality, all of human life. Don't you see? The lowest is down here, the matter. And then... The higher in the scale of being you get, you have the material, and finally the, there, there's a final cause to everything. There's purpose in it all. There's a teleology through nature. I don't know if some of you know Dr. Ram's book, for instance, on the Bible and science. Some of you know that. Who knows that? Well, Dr. Ram is trying to combine, as I understand it, some sort of teleological concept of nature the way the Roman Catholics have it, Thomas Aquinas, with the idea of science. Well, I think it's a futile effort myself, because you can't tie on this kind of purpose or teleology of nature. The Christian teleology says God, for his own glory, has created and has ordained and sent his Son into the world to redeem from sin. That's his purpose. Whereas in this case, it's in this case, you have one being. You wipe out first the creator-creature distinction. And then you say, being has in it various elements, and it has in it a tendency toward something higher and higher, and that's teleology. Now, this brings us then to the question of Roman Catholicism. Are there any questions so far? You know, I haven't ever thought a lot about Plato's analogy of the cave and the idea that, that what we see here were, are the shadows of uh, the real. All right, here's the cave, and here we are. And uh, we are here, he says, like all those people. You remember the story of the cave? We sit here, and we have chains about our neck like that. And we look into the cave, he says, and the sun shines from above us and back us. And there on an elevation there are figures walking, and they cast shadows on the wall. And they are speaking together, and we hear the echoes, and we see the shadows. Now, as a that's like all of us human beings. We're really in a cave. Everything is ultimately darkness in one sense. But then somebody, one of those cave dwellers, somehow got out of the cave. And this one that comes out, it doesn't explain how he got out. You see, that just happened accidentally. You mustn't ask questions about how that happened. But he came out of he came out of the cave. He was up there and he saw the light. And then he went back into the cave and here they were sitting with chains on their necks. And one of here, let's call him uh, Miller. Now <laughs> Miller got out of the cave, 
saw things for what they really were in the light of the sun. And uh, he saw the colors and he saw the azaleas and he saw everything beautiful. And then he had to go back. And he told them down there about that world of light. And what did they say? Did they believe him? Did they believe him? No. They said, up he went, down he came, and he's just the same as he always was. Well, I'm afraid, of course. That is to say, in Christianity, when you are born again, you have seen the light, and then you go back to the cave dwellers, the natural man. Because in our case, the cave dwellers, I'll come to Aristotle in a minute. Uh, with us, the cave dwellers are the sinners. And man has taken his own eyes out spiritually. He's blind spiritually. But Christ has come into the world, and he didn't come here by accident. And he doesn't take us out by accident, out of the cave, but he sends his spirit into the cave, and he gives us light. He said to Lazarus, I say unto thee, arise from the tomb, from the cave, so to speak, and I will give you light. And then he enables us to see and to understand, not exhaustively, but here, in this case. The assumption is that man must know exhaustively and comprehensively, or he doesn't know at all. He has to be, therefore, a participant with that eternal, changeless being of God, eternal, changeless light, which is up there. And now he's in a cave, he's in darkness. Now that cave is darkness because it's finitude. You see? The evil is not due to a fall, is not ethical, is not because of sin. The darkness of the cave dwellers, their blindness, is due to, well, it's like moles. Here are the moles and the bats. Now, here are the moles. We'll just take the bats in the cave. They're more likely to be in a cave. Now, these bats are blind. Now, they can't help it. They, it's not fall. There was no fall, no bat fall. Uh, <laughs> the bats either prehistorically or historically. Uh, therefore, we don't say that they, you are totally depraved, you miserable bats. You are the wrath and curse of God, the miserable bats. We don't say anything like that to the bats. That is to say, on this non-Christian basis, don't you see, man isn't supposed to be guilty. It's all a helplessness and a hopelessness because man is just out of luck Reality is just constituted this way. The whole of reality is not what the Christian position says it is, but it's the exact opposite. Well, now, then the difference between Aristotle and Plato is not in the nature of the case of basic difference. You see, we have to go to these poor Platonists and say, well, my dear friend, uh, you Platonist, it's too bad that you've got to change your total outlook you mustn't think of an eternal self-existent being which is all changeless and is light and the changing and darkness over here you must think of yourself as a creature and the world is created now then the reason for your blindness is not that you're out of luck and you don't see at all it's, the situation is much worse than you think it is I think of that passage that Paul speaks of in Rome or in Corinthians. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where are the wise? Where are the scribes? Hath not God made foolish their wisdom? Well, what Paul is trying to tell them or what he is telling them is that they are 
because of the fall of man, are seeking in vain for light. They have the light within them so far as they are created in the image of God, but they're holding it under. And this is their construction, their philosophical efforts. By means of that, they can get no light. Well, then they will forever stay in the cave. There is no escape to this light at all. Well, now, Plato, then, has these people in the cave. What is, how does he get them out? Well, he gets them out by accident. And they actually never get out because they come back in again. How does Aristotle get them out? Well, he says, uh, look here. You aren't actually in this cave. You are already involved. You're on a staircase that leads upward. And you must think of yourself as going and as moving upward. And therefore, you're interpreting yourself in terms of two principles, a dialectical situation, pure non-being, but also pure being. Now, here you have pure being by itself, and here you have non-being. And they are two separate from one another, two dualistically opposed to one another. Now, Aristotle moves them together dialectically. And he says, therefore, people that are in the cave, they're all coming out. They're gradually coming out because that's only the lower aspect of them. The higher aspect, which is also in them, is that they have light built into them, partly. Now, that was really also Plato's position, you see. He says, we are really, to the extent that we have intellect, intellect, we are divine. Plato's cave is only pertains to that lower aspect, as you see, and consequently, so far as man is intellect, he's got light in him, and he doesn't need any redemption. Paul therefore tells the Greeks, things are much worse than you thought of them as being, uh, because you have sinned, and you are under the wrath of God, and you're headed for eternal destruction. In your view, nobody is headed for eternal destruction. Nobody has sinned. Nobody is guilty. Nobody is therefore under the wrath of God. But on the other hand, Paul also says, things are much better than any of you have ever thought of them. Because on this basis, whether you have Plato or whether you have Aristotle, the thing is finally hopeless. There is no escape from the cave. See, here on the Christian basis, man is to be sure. He's taken out his own eyes and he is a sinner. But Christ has come to redeem from sin. And the world isn't ultimately having evil built into it God the creator redeemer is in control and he is able to establish his kingdom and Christ does establish the kingdom and the powers of hell cannot prevail against it now you see first you tell the Greeks that things are far far worse than they thought then you say how much better because they are not willing to admit that man is totally depraved in the Christian sense at all. He is just metaphysically out of luck. That's all. It's a metaphysical out of luckness that is here, that you're in the cave. And therefore, if you're saved, you're saved sort of by accident. Accident. As this man came out of the cave by accident. But he'll also go back. And therefore, the whole scheme of salvation is, as the Christian position has, it doesn't fit in with it. Does Aristotle ever indicate any incentive or reward for going up that ladder? Well, everybody is going up. It's like the moving staircase in the department stores. You don't need incentive. 
You don't need it. <laughs> well, I mean, you're moving, aren't you? I mean, without the effort on your part. It's auto-soterism. It's self-salvation, not by act. Now, what I do oftentimes, if I'm impatient, I walk up those steps even when the movement is going. My wife doesn't. She thinks that's foolish. She stays put. <laughs> she has a lot more sense, and she gets there one second later than I do. <laughs> and then I wait and I pop, waiting for her, don't you see, how senseless. Well, women have a lot more sense than men in those things. <laughs> Any other questions? I'm still hazy on the relationship of being between the creature and the creator. What is the relationship you have being as far as Aristotle going from uh, uh, pure matter to actuality? What is what is the Christian position of being as far as our relationship between the, uh, the creature which we are and the creator? Well, we have created being. We don't have the same sort of being. We don't have a little bit of divine being. In other words, our, that's what I meant by the illustration. My nickel is worth as much as is LBJ's nickel. In other words, same sort of stuff. With us, we are, God is an eternal, changeless being. We are created, changeless beings. There are two kinds of beings. Created, creator being, creature being. Dependent, derivative. Derivative. Therefore, we are to take commandment from God, and we are to love Him. In other words, our being isn't just that much less of the same being. Is that not plain? I don't know quite what your problem is. I thought that wouldn't be too difficult. That is that on the non-Christian basis, you wipe this out and you say, God has sprung a leak. <laughs> <laughs> He's oozed out. Now, then we're a bit of the ooze that is oozed out. It's the same sort of stuff. But on the Christian basis, we're not the same sort of stuff. We are created by the will of God on a created level. Now, that's temporal. We're subject to change. We don't have eternity built in us in the sense that we're not little bits of eternal self-existent beings. And that's why we're in every respect dependent upon God's prior interpretation of us. He gives us his orders, and we are to obey, we are to love. And that's why he can save us. On this basis, see, there's no saving. On the non-Christian basis, on Plato and Aristotle, there isn't any such thing as salvation of man's being. God couldn't save you on that basis. Because if, if you were on this basis, you said, look, oh, I was horribly miserable because I'm so near non-being. Don't you see? God would say, yes, I've got the same tummy ache that you have. Because I've got non-being in me too. And I can't do anything about it. God isn't even a self-conscious being. He hasn't created you. He has no power to redeem you. He has no initiative over you in any sense. Well, that, that's kind of a modification of close times in the fountain when uh, the pure beings kind of emanated in the different uh, elements. Would Very good. I mean, is this a modification of that, that type of idea? Uh, what I just now said about Plato and Aristotle? Oh, well, Plotinus goes beyond them, of course. Now, let's talk about Plotinus a minute and finish off. Plotinus lived in the Christian era, right? About in the third century, am I right? I mean, certainly in the Chris early Christian era. He lived 
for St. Augustine. Now, we talk about New Platonism. Let's talk about, for a minute, about what happened later on, what schools of philosophy there were at the time of Paul. There were the Stoics, and what else? The Epicureans, and the Platonists, and the Aristotelians. There were, when Paul was on earth, then he had these four schools of philosophy. Remember, in Acts, he mentions the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers. Well, there were two others, the Platonists. Now, they had, by this time, all of them got skeptic. You say, we saw a while ago that the sophists, they took the skeptical position since the greatest philosophers couldn't know reality, so they took the position, man is the measure. Well, now, by this time, Paul's time, the Stoics and the Epicureans and the Platonists and the Aristotelian were all skeptical, and they were therefore all also what is called ethical. Uh, that is to say, they said, well, theoretical, metaphysically, epistemologically, we can't know ultimate reality, but let's just behave well so that we can get along with one another practically in this world. And therefore, they were universalistic. That is to say, there's nobody that knows any more than anybody else, and all nations are equally good. The idea of the man, the universal man, all right? This was in the early Christian, the Hellenistic period, so-called. The Hellenistic period, which is the late Greek or early Christian period. And then at the climax of early Christian thinking, when we have, we have Plotinus, the latest great Greek philosopher. What he does is he combines together Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and all that is Greek, except the Epicureans, because they are bad, he thinks they're materialists. But he's particularly interested in getting the benefit out of Plato. Now, his notion is that, therefore, of the scale of being. Aristotle went like that. He talked about the analogy of being analogy of being. By that Aristotle meant that being is not the sort of thing that Plato says. This is static and this is changing. But he says there is change and there is permanence in all being. That's what he means or meant by being as analogical. It has the Roman Catholics later on put that together by saying there's equivocism in being and there's univocism. There's logic and there's brute factuality, and the whole thing is sort of a mixture. Now, what he this really means, therefore, a gradual climbing up. Man, with his existence, you see, being very little and very small and insignificant, he can, as it were, participate in this, and he gets higher and higher in the scale of being. Well, that scale of being idea is what Plotinus has. And it's basically similar to Platonism. That's why he ca it's called Neo-Platonism. And it is the attempt to say, well, look here, all reality is one. In other words, the basic Greek monistic assumption that there is no creator-creature distinction, but all is basically one. And that the only difference between God and man is that we are nearer to non-being than God is. Now, therefore, what salvation is, is to be lifted in the scale of being. is sort of a lift idea. 
and it's a gradual process. You go higher and higher, and you get the more universal, and you get the higher universal, and finally you get to the purely unspeakable one. You can say nothing of it. Now, that was already true in the whole of Greek philosophy. Here's the individual will say, here's the two-legged chicken. Now, here's the, the quadruped, the cow. Well, pretty soon you don't talk about having legs at all. You just say animal life and inanimate life. You forget about all the legs. How many do they have? Two or four? And then you have, pretty soon you get down to the idea of being, which is a broader, higher concept. And you forget about animality and inanimality. And you finally get to the final one. Now, Aristotle has that one, which he calls thought thinking itself. Now, that God is the God of Greek monotheism. And Doiwer, in his book, speaks about the Greek form matter scheme. You have, down here you have matter, up there there is form. And they are correlative to one another. But the form is attained by the way of negation, by dropping this, by dropping that, and finally, you, not you get up there, because if you're up there, you wouldn't know that you were up there. But the point is that there is, ultimately, above everything else, there is some principle that's anonymous, that has no name at all. That's ultimate reality. Now, that ultimate reality overflows, and is good. Bonum, it is the good bonum est diffusum. It is inherently diffuse. That is to say, it overflows, and that's the point you're making. God naturally wants to express himself beyond himself, and so he gives being, makes human beings that participate in his being. And since they participate in his being, his being is in them, and it's the same sort of being, and therefore all being is good except that being down here, it also has a certain amount of evil in it. God himself is pure, absolutely good being, and when you get down here, get lower, there's a mixture of evil. It's unavoidable. It gets like the storms in the desert, sand that blows through your, and in your clothes and gets in your hair and in your eyes. How can you help it? But inherently, that whole being, you attain, you go upward by way of negation. That's why mysticism, negative theology, the way of negation, gets you out of this world. Now, that's essentially Plato. But Plotinus carries that through, that motif through, till he gets, well, now, that other has to be a source of explanations for this. And so he says that, whatever it is, we know nothing of it. But it is him, it is good, and as good, it is diffuse. It, it runs over. It bubbles over. Now, we are down here, and we are therefore participant in that being and the overflow of God's being. And therefore, we are also divine. We are also good. But we are, though we are also good, so far as we have being, we also, since we are so far away from that original source of good and divine being, we have an admixture within us of less good and of still less good and finally of no good. Not that anybody is absolutely no good. There's no total depravity, of course. Now, that is the latest and the final point of view of Greek philosophy as it was expressed by the Neoplatonists and particularly as it was set forth in 
and they have me as a couple of times. Did he give personality or uh, perfection? Did he actually give an attribute to this unspeakable one that overflows? No, he said that's anonymous. Did, he, uh, did I understand your question? Yes. Right. I mean, uh, it is wholly unknowable and unknown. Sure, miss, you get there by not this, not that negation. We'll talk about negative theology and its results coming into the Christian church.